Oh, let's see. What John Daly stories do I have? (laughs) It's the H-Dog Pod with your host, Michael the Hound Dog Harrison. Hey, welcome to episode 73, the Jack Nicholas edition of the podcast. The Golden Bear won 73 times on the PGA Tour, third most all-time, nine behind both Tiger Woods and Sam Snead. Nicholas also won the 1973 PGA Championship and was a player of the year, having snagged seven titles that season. His thrilling victory at the 1986 Masters at the age of 46 was the stuff of legend. Maybe. Yes, sir! That was perhaps only eclipsed by Tiger Woods' masterpiece in 2019, where he came back from a litany, good word, of injuries to win his fifth green jacket, which is one back of Jack's record. Many doubted we'd ever see it. But here it is. The return to glory. The stat that always intrigued me about Nicholas was the 18 major wins, which is the most all-time. Tiger had 15. But he also had 19 runner-ups in majors. It's fascinating that he could be widely considered the greatest of all time. He was in the top two a whopping 37 times in majors, yet Jack only won 18 of them? Shouldn't he have more wins? I digress. My next guest has covered Tiger's career and will undoubtedly have a discussion about whether he'll return to golf in some capacity to hopefully overtake Nicholas's record one day. So without further ado, let's get cracking. Okay, now welcome on a very special guest, Jason Sobel. He's a golf writer slash aficionado for the Action Network, host on Sirius XM PGA Tour, and he's won four sports Emmys and recently covered the Ryder Cup, which was dominated by the United States. He also insisted if he came on, we discuss some hockey, so we'll get into that a little bit later. Welcome to the H-Talk Pod, Jason. Thanks for having me on. Good to talk to you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I guess where to begin? Uh, I did mention that Ryder Cup. Uh, tell us about the, the atmosphere and covering that, and uh, I guess uh, all the parties uh, that the States must have had. Yeah, it's a great atmosphere. Uh, this is the this is the ninth Ryder Cup that I've covered, uh, everything since back in 2004. And, um, you know, this was as good as any of them. Take away the fact that, okay, this was – one of, if not the strongest U.S. team that we've ever seen. Just the atmosphere, the weather, it was kind of like football weather in Wisconsin. And I just, the whole thing just felt right. There was no electricity through the air. I mean, just from, from Monday uh, throughout the entire week, it, it just felt big. It felt important. Um, and it really was. I, I think that, granted, we've seen fans, spectators at golf tournaments now for close to a year. And so, uh, it's nothing new to see uh, huge groups of fans, but this really, uh, I, I think there was something more to the Ryder Cup uh, this year. The fact that it was postponed for a year. Many of the players lobbied last year for that postponement because the Ryder Cup just doesn't mean nearly as much without fans. I mean, mm-hmm. fans are such a big part of uh, this event. And having those fans, having just thousands and thousands of fans lining the fairways watching these uh, watching these matches and uh, cheering on the players. I, I just thought that, like, again, the buzz there was as good as anything I've ever seen, really. Oh, definitely. It was a spectacular event and, uh, you know, still surprised. You, you know, of course, you think the States might be able to, on paper, crush them. But, of course, you know, I mean, several of the past Ryder Cups, they haven't done so. So to win by 10 points was incredible. The, they must have been uh, went absolutely wild partying uh, afterwards, eh? <laughs> uh, yeah, if you saw the post uh, the post match press conference, Dustin Johnson, I think got started early, and uh, they they may have put them out in an order in which 
the ones who wanted to celebrate the most were done the earliest and <laughs> could uh, could start those celebrations. But um, I, look, I I do think there's something to the fact that other U.S. teams in the past have probably had more fun being part of the Ryder Cup. I, I have no doubt that other teams on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday night were in the team room bonding, having drinks, having a good time, more so than this team because Steve Stricker, and smartly, uh, Steve Stricker told his players, look, do what you normally do. If you get done with a practice round and you want to go take a nap, go take a nap. If you are the kind of guy that, you know, hey, I, I my elbows hurt a little bit, I need to get some some ice and some treatment, go do that. If you if you want to go have a beer in the team room, by all means, go have a beer in the team room with some of your teammates if that's what they want to do. But he treated them like professionals, treated them like adults. There was a lot less of the rah-rah speeches and the videos that other captains have shown. He's Look, these guys know it's important. I'm not, I don't have to stress the importance and get them, if anything, sort of a little more tensed up before this starts. I'm just going to let them go play golf and let them be themselves. And I really think that for those people who still think the captains don't make a difference that, Hey, I could have captained the U S team this year. I, you know, just, just like Steve Stricker, put a couple of pairings together, let them go play. They're going to beat the other guys. That hasn't been true in the past. As you mentioned, mm-hmm. the U S had lost seven of the previous nine editions of the Ryder cup. And I think what Steve Stricker did was he was able to get these players to buy in essentially like to his persona. I really think the team took on his personality, which is workmanlike, soft-spoken, go get your job done, and don't worry about the other stuff. And that's what they did, and that really worked for them. Yeah, uh, and without question. Uh, have you, uh, also, I'm assuming you've, uh, well, you definitely have covered uh, President's Cups as well. Uh, were, the, were the celebrations uh, any bigger or less uh, than other previous U.S. Uh, celebrations at the President's Cup? You know, it's a good question. I I think that the celebrations themselves are probably pretty similar. Uh, There's no doubt the Ryder Cup just means more. It's got more tradition. um, It's got more of a rivalry. It means more. That said, first of all, there are certain things about the President's Cup that I wish the Ryder Cup would do. Uh, Matching players, matching partnerships up against each other as opposed to just, here's mine, one through four for the first four sessions or one through 12 on Sunday. The President's Cup literally as the captains go back and forth like they're doing a fantasy football draft. That is so fun. Yeah. I, I love that. Uh, I love the fact that it's four days instead of three at the President's Cup. More players play in each of the team sessions. All of those things I, I would love to see the Ryder Cup adopt because I think the PGA Tour has gotten it right with the President's Cup and so many of these things. Uh, and, and the other part of this is that, uh, you know, this might be a little controversial, but the international side for the President's Cup right now is a much better team than the European Ryder Cup team. Uh, the European Ryder Cup team is old, and it's getting older. I mean, they've got a lot of these guys, Lee Westwood, Ian Poulter, Paul Casey, who are getting up there. They're in their 40s, and uh, whether they're on teams in the future uh, or not, uh, you know, it, it was definitely kind of showed their age a little bit this past, uh, uh, this past month where, you know, the, these guys just they can't quite contend with the guys who are in their prime on the American side, as far as the international side right now, there are a lot of really, really good players. I know Corey Connors from Canada is mm-hmm. sort of the favorite son there right now, and I'm a tremendous fan of his game. Uh, anytime the putter is even lukewarm for Corey Connors because he's such a good ball striker, he's going to start contending more and more on the PGA Tour, and I think he's, uh, if not a lock, at least close to it 
for the the President's Cup next year. And then, I mean, I, I'm going to miss some guys going through this, but Cameron Smith and Joaquin Neiman mm-hmm. and Nito Pereira and Hideki Matsuyama and Sunjay M. I mean, there's a whole lot of really, really talented players on the international side that I, I don't think it's ever going to rival the intensity of a Ryder Cup, but I do think the competitive balance is going to be better over the next handful of years. Two players who surely will be on that uh, U.S. Um, President's Cup team and also who are on the Ryder Cup team, Bryson and Brooks, just uh, announced that they are going to be playing in the match, 12-hole match against each other. Uh, what Are you excited to see that? I, I know a lot of golf fans have uh, seem to be um, pretty, uh, pretty fired up about that one. Yeah, I'm not one of them. I, look, I'll watch, and it, it's better than nothing else. I don't begrudge these guys. Hey, let's go out and make some money. Let's go do one of these matches. I'm going to do 12 holes, which uh, almost to me is like telling the fan base out there, hey, we know you don't want to watch us for 18 holes, so we're just going to do two-thirds of it and see <laughs> if that works a little better for you on, uh, with your post-Thanksgiving schedule. I, I don't know. I, I thought the whole sort of hatred between them, the rivalry between them was a little manufactured mm-hmm. right from the start. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that they've kind of hugged and made up literally at the Ryder Cup, I, I don't know where this goes from here. Neither one of these guys quite has the presence to, to sort of pull off a, I mean, with 12, uh, 12 holes, it's probably a three-hour match instead of a five-hour match, but even three hours of just watching them on camera, Brooks doesn't show a whole lot of personality out there. I'm sure he's going to try to trash talk a little bit. I'm sure he's going to make a few snide comments and <laughs> a couple of jokes, and uh, he'll be a little snarky. I'm sure Bryson will, you know, kind of do his Bryson thing, and you know, he'll make some of his kind of square jokes, and uh, <laughs> and he'll uh, he'll try to uh, get under Brooks's skin a little bit, and it'll be, you know, kind of sort of funny a little bit, but I, I don't know that it's going to be any sort of great theater. But again. Look, I, looking at the sports schedule for the day after Thanksgiving, there's a handful of college football games that uh, haven't yet um, scheduled times for the games. You don't know if they're afternoon or night games, but uh, not a whole lot of great ones that day. There's not much else going on. Uh, I believe there's probably some hockey games that day or at least that night, but uh, really the sports schedule is kind of empty. Why not? If these guys can make some money, go do it. If people don't like it, they don't want to watch, they don't have to watch. And if people are into it, they do want to watch. They'll have something to watch on a Friday. I, you know, I'm not going to get mad about the fact that they're out there uh, deciding to make this thing happen. Yeah, and, and uh, about, about those two, a uh, great friend of mine and co-worker, Adam Scully, who uh, you know, I've talked to him about Bryson and, and Brooks forever on this. And I actually said from the get-go, I actually think that it would be hilarious if secretly there were buddies sipping tequila on the beach somewhere and they're every single time they're just dreaming up scenarios of ways to, you know, obviously the player uh, impact fund and, you know, get to get their names out there. I just think it'd be hilarious if it, all this, it was just all a troll. That's why I said from the start and everyone's like, no, they absolutely hate each other. I'm like, I don't, obviously I don't think they're actually buddies, but they definitely leaned in, into the fact that they hated each other a little bit, at least, at least from Brooks' side anyway. Yes. Yes. Brooks definitely played the bully in this situation. And Brooks and uh, Bryson was sort of the, uh, the class nerd who was getting picked on a little bit. Look, I, I think it's somewhere in between. I, I don't think they're, exactly buddies who are hanging out uh, on the beach together. I also don't think they hate each other by any means. And quite honestly, this whole thing, uh, I, I guess it started a couple of years ago, but it, it really got the ball rolling when we saw the video of 
Bryson walking behind Brooks during an interview at Kiowa this year during the PGA Championship, and Brooks kind of looked at him and rolled his eyes at him. And that's essentially the the reaction from most players when they hear Bryson talking about his game. It's not, man, I hate that guy. It's uh, like yeah. rolling your eyes. But, <laughs> and I think Bryson said something to the to the effect of, man, I can't believe that ball went there. I hit that one perfect. And Brooks is just kind of rolling his eyes like, obviously – you didn't hit it perfect because it didn't land right next to the hole. And so I think that's kind of the reaction that most players give Bryson. It's not, I hate you and I never want to see you and I don't want to talk to you and go away from me. It's, I don't know, I kind of roll my eyes out of it. Look, I have really good friends of mine that I roll my eyes at every time I hang out with them because <laughs> they say things that makes you roll your eyes. It doesn't mean I hate you and I don't want to hang out with you and I'll never play golf with you. It's just, I'm going to roll my eyes uh, a couple times uh, a day anytime I'm hanging out with you. Uh, that's a good way of putting it. I really like that one actually a lot. That, uh, that's good. And you, and you said Kiowa Island, of course, the winner at that, uh, Phil Mickelson being the uh, oldest major champion ever. Obviously, that was an incredible uh, feat of his. I see in your Twitter bio you have a quote from him. Uh, tell us about that. So the quote is, uh, you can't press when you're ahead. I had uh, Phil has taken a shine to Twitter. He's become very good on social media. Yeah. And for whatever reason, he likes, not necessarily trolling my account, but uh, it, a lot of times I'll put something out there on Twitter and uh, two minutes later I see that Phil has responded. And so, you know, I, I can't let him just respond without having some sort of response back. And so, you know, spark a little conversation. And uh, there was something, and I don't remember exactly what it was. It was probably a year ago where – I said something to him, and he said something about gambling, golf. And I said, you know, ah, knowing you, I thought you might have pressed. And he said, you know, you can't press when you're ahead, which is, <laughs> I, I don't know. That that just sort of feels like less golf and more of a life motto for Phil that, you know, hey, can't press when you're ahead. And Phil is ahead in every single strokes gained life category that there is right now. Yeah, I know. He's definitely dominating social media, no, no question about that. Obviously, uh, well, I mentioned the, uh, yeah, you're working for the Action Network. Tell us about that and uh, working with Amanda Rose and uh, Justin Ray. Yeah, so came to the Action Network about three and a half years ago. Uh, you know, I had always thought that there was a, that there was like this empty space, empty void in the sports journalism or at least sports writing industry, sports media industry, where um, you had all these, all these people covering covering sports, covering teams, covering players on a regular basis who were essentially covering it from an organic perspective that, you know, they were saying, Hey, if you're a fan of this team, here's some, you know, inside tidbits on the team and on the players and things you might want to know. And then you've got people covering it from a betting perspective who are essentially not necessarily out there and knowing the players and around them. They are, Sitting at home, you know, the proverbial, like, hanging out in mom's basement on a computer looking at statistical models. And so I always thought, like, well, what if you could kind of put those together? What if you could have people covering it from a betting perspective who are also out there at tournaments uh, as far as golf or games and other sports and speaking with players, speaking with coaches that sort of had this inside knowledge, but we're using the inside knowledge to help readers and viewers and listeners gain knowledge for for their betting purposes and so i i i thought for years that that was 
uh, a missed opportunity across the marketplace as betting has become more legalized and regulated. In fact, I took the job with action a month before the PASPA uh, was approved by the Supreme Court here in the U.S. And um, so I was taking a, a little bit of a chance myself, but um, now it's really, really grown. And now that's exactly what we're seeing. And I tell people all the time, if you're getting into the sports media industry and you don't have some hand in uh, in gambling and fantasy somehow, if that's not at least a small percentage of what you're doing on a regular basis, then you're probably doing it wrong. I, I just don't think that there's uh, that much openness for uh, for other content on a regular basis. I, you know, I always give the example, look, if I'm a guy who's, you know, I'm, I'm working nine to five, I come home, I see the family, I have dinner, I've got about five minutes each night to, you know, read a, a couple of golf stories real quickly and skim through. Do I want to read about, hey, here's, you know, some up-and-comer player, or here's a story about some journeyman who's going back to his hometown to play an event, or do I want to read, here's how you can make money betting on golf this week. I always think it's the latter, mm-hmm. and it's not even close. I, I think that the, the thirst for that information on how my personal investment can can be made better on a weekly basis, I, I just think that, um, that that's the important thing. And, and quite honestly, that, that personal investment is what this whole thing is about, too. I, you know, I say this all the time. It doesn't matter if you're betting big money or betting a dollar a week on something. Just putting in some sort of investment that means something to you all of a sudden makes you a better fan. And I know you want to talk some hockey with me. I, I, I make DFS lineups in hockey, do some fantasy hockey. I'll, I'll bet on hockey throughout the year. And when I do, all of a sudden I'm staying up late to watch the Canucks Flames game at 1030 here on the East Coast when if I didn't have some sort of investment on it, and even if it's not a big investment, uh, if I didn't have that, I, I wouldn't be paying attention. I wouldn't even know the next day who won the game. But just having that, that personal investment, having some engagement with what's going on, I think makes you a better sports fan, if nothing else. Yeah, no, that's very true. And I, uh, yeah, I've been writing for sportsbettingdime.com and uh, TSN Edge and doing some all bets per off golf videos for a few years now. Just mm-hmm. trying to, just trying, like you said, do, uh, doing a lot of different things from a gambling perspective. Because, yeah, who doesn't want to win money? And golf, certainly, it's so hard to be correct with these picks. But if you are correct, there is so much money to be made. Uh, unless you're betting uh, this, the tournament, the European Tour event this week had John Rahm mm-hmm. at plus 200 to win. I don't care what golfer it is. I'm never betting any player before a tournament starts at plus 200. That just that line is uh, obviously he's a uh, the number one player in the world. But I'm not touching that line. That's for sure. Uh, what? Uh, yeah, I'm totally with you. And by the way, he shot eight under in the first round. <laughs> yeah. He's going to win this thing by five. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It sounds like they they obviously have the betting uh, line correct on that one. But man, that is so low. Uh, do you have any? What are your best and worst gambling beats? Do you have one that sticks out that was just the greatest, and one that just crushed you? Or oh, jeez, they all blend together. Um, there's nothing. I I am a like a high ceiling, low floor. We use those terms uh, for speaking about players all the time. Um, you know, certain guys who hey, he can win this week on any given week. He can win, but. He can also finish dead last. And so mm-hmm. I, I'm sort of this high ceiling, low floor where, uh, you know, I, I should probably be smarter and get a lot of top 10s and top 20s in golf and just sort of uh, play it more uh, straight line and, you know, just kind of try to turn a profit. But quite honestly, it's for me, it's 
sort of this this extra income where hey, I'm just going to have some fun with it and try to hit some lottery tickets. And so, yeah, when you hit one, it's like, man, this is cool. And then you try to keep going on it and you try to make some more. Sure. We've all got some bad beat stories. Uh, I, I think my favorite bad beat story happened about two months ago, at the Wyndham championship was the Wyndham. Yeah. Like a six the Wyndham championship. So, uh, Russell Henley, this is in oh. Greensboro. Russell Henley's guy had a top five on. Oh. Russell Henley <laughs> led for like 68 holes of the tournament. Yeah. Um, he winds up missing a putt on the final green to finish one shot out of a playoff. Now, one shot out of a playoff at every event over the past 20 years, dating back to the 2001 Los Angeles Open, one shot out of a playoff would have cashed a top five ticket. At the Wyndham that week, six players tied for the lowest score and went into a playoff. Russell Henley finished one shot back and wound up seventh. in seventh place and did not cash that top five ticket, which <laughs> I, I'm not even mad. That's remarkable. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 2001. I remember that tournament well. Uh, Robert Allenby won that massive playoff uh, as well um, against Brando Chamblee and a bunch of guys. Uh, yep. Yeah, uh, I actually had a, a a pretty hilarious, completely random win a few years ago on a golfer I'd never heard of on the European tour. And actually, the the field was longer than it usually, or sorry, bigger than it usually would be. I think it was like two hundred and forty golfers, which was so random. Oh. And I was like, you know what? I don't know hardly anybody playing. They were all just pretty much, you know, uh, either up and comers or washed up players. So I bet I said, okay, I'll just do a, a pick a number between one and two hundred and forty. So I picked the thirteenth number. <laughs> I went down to the 13th player on the tee sheet, and I was like, I, I have no clue who this Shubanker Sharma guy is. I thought maybe he's like, he either could be a young player or he could be like a, a journeyman guy who's been playing. He's like in his mid 40s. I have no idea who this Shubanker Sharma guy is, but he was 110 to 1. So I put five bucks on him randomly. I'm like, I have no clue who he wins, who he is. This is the very, actually, the very first time I've tried the strategy, and he won. <laughs> and uh, so that was that? amazing. Uh, and I could try that 100 times again and never get that right. Like, obviously, it's completely blind luck, right? But it's just crazy to think that that, that, that happened the very first time I tried that. But uh, yeah. I, I mean, it just goes to show. It, and, you know, I, I try to use, like I was saying, I, I try to use some combination of like, yeah, statistical analysis and, you know, looking at the numbers and a combination of that in, hey, I kind of, I know the players and I know like who might play well at a certain spot, who needs to be trending and who can kind of come out of nowhere and just step up and have a really good week. And so uh, you try to balance all that, but it just goes to show, I mean, you can point at a number and pick a player off that and all of a sudden they can hit. So uh, this is a very inexact science here. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's uh, pretty pretty ridiculous. So I've been following his career. I bet on him again when he won uh, like a year later, and I bet on him this week. And it's just like, you know what? I love this guy. He's uh, made me some money. So uh, I love Shubanker Sharma. So uh, one of the worst uh, beats for me this year was uh, from a personal fan perspective, but also money. Uh, uh, my favorite golfer is John Daly, and uh, he was tied for the lead with Mike Weir in the last hole on the Champions Tour and then rinsed one in the water to lose. Could have won five hundred dollars, yep. and they wanted to cash me out two hundred instead of the five hundred. I'm like, I'm not taking two hundred. Like he could absolutely win this thing. If he hits a good approach on the last hole, no chance I'm taking the two hundred. And of course, obviously, hits the ball in the water. It's just uh, that was soul crushing because I love the guy so much. Uh, you, um, <laughs> you know, do you have any uh, stories about uh, uh, John Daly at all? Oh, let's see what John Daly stories do I have. <laughs> mm. Most of them can't be told publicly. Nah, I, <laughs> look, I, you know, we, we've all had interactions with John. He's, uh, 
he's one of a kind. He, he really is. And, you know, a lot of people say that, you know, if John had committed more and worked harder and, you know, kind of committed himself to the craft of, of golf that he could have been better. I, I maintain that he wouldn't have been John Daly if mm-hmm. he didn't live the way he lived. And so, um, two major championships amongst his five PGA tour wins guy, uh, hit it longer than anybody had softer hands around the greens than anybody, uh, and lived it harder than anybody else too. So, um, yeah, definitely, uh, a legendary kind of guy that um, I, I don't know we'll ever see someone like him um, as revered on the PGA Tour. I mean, there are going to be guys, you know, who who are great champions and guys who we really like watching, but I don't know that there's going to be someone who goes about their business the same way as John Daly. You think uh, uh, Tiger Woods will eventually uh, work his way back into the game? And uh, I, uh, I would love to see him at least, at least the father-son challenges. That, that was so fun last year. Yeah, that's a billion-dollar question. I, I honestly have – I couldn't guess. I, I, Camp Tiger has been very, very quiet over the past six to eight months, and uh, I'm not even sure if Tiger was on this podcast right now that Tiger himself would be able to give you an answer. You might not know right now sort of what the future holds for him. Really the only intel we've gotten because uh, so many who know Tiger well have played it so close to the vest was – Steve Stricker about a month ago saying, hey, Tiger won't be at the President's Cup, but he's working hard to come back and he's trying. So at least that gives us a glimmer of hope. And we understand, at least based on what Stricker is saying, that he wants to come back. He wants to play golf again, whether that's in a ceremonial role, whether that means he thinks he can go win a major championship again. I have no idea. And I don't know what the long-term prognosis is for him health-wise. I've got to believe that you know uh, the leg can't be nearly 100%, and his leg's not 100%, uh, that back that he's had four surgeries on probably is taking some of the brunt of it as well. So I don't know. I, I'd like to think that you know we can hold out hope and, and hope the Tiger can at least make it back to play again, to compete and go out there and you know just have fun. And especially, you mentioned the father-son. That, that's the tournament that I know he really enjoyed being out there with Charlie and Hopefully you can make that happen again, too. So, uh, again, I, I wish I had some information. I wish I could break some news for you right here. But I, I'm like everybody else. I'm just waiting to see, uh, you know, when and if there's, uh, there's some news at some point. Well, if there's an athlete and a golfer who can absolutely do it, as we've seen before in terms of some bad injuries, then he came back, of course, to win the Masters in 2019. It's definitely him. And uh, uh, for many years, people were always uh, saying, oh, he'll never win a major again. He's injured. He's done. He should retire. All this stuff. You know, this is a, f- a few years ago, people were saying that. And I was like, no, if anyone could ever come back, if he's healthy, and that was obviously a massive if, uh, but if he was ever uh, healthy again, I-, I have no doubt in my mind that he could win again. And uh, so it was great to see him uh, win the Masters. It was great being there for that Masters. And uh, I, look, I, you never doubt Tiger. And we've learned that time and time and time again, that uh, the guy just, if he puts his mind to it and he wants to come back, he can come back. People said he'd never play again he played again people said he'd never win again he won again people said he'd never win a major again he won a major again now uh part of me thinks that tiger may say look that was that was kind of the final chapter and and i put so much into it i put so much into my body to 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 get to that level i just don't know that i have it in me to go do that again i was able to come back show my kids that i could win a major championship i could win the masters again i don't have anything left to prove and so I, I don't know that I could put my body through 
the work that it needs to go through to do this again. But part of me also knows that if anyone can do it, Tiger can do it. Mm-hmm. And if he's sitting at home right now saying, look, I'm not 100%, I'm never going to be 100%, but let's get to the highest percentage that my body can get to and go give this thing another run, then I'm certainly not going to doubt him at all. We've learned in golf, never say never. Uh, you know, the, the Forever is a very, very long time. You can sit here and say, okay, well, football players have been out of the game for three, four, five years. He's probably not coming back to be at his peak level once again in golf. It can happen. We've seen it happen. So, again, I, I don't put it past him whatsoever. Definitely not. Definitely not. Uh, we uh, touched on hockey a little bit earlier. Let's get, get into a little bit of puck here. Uh, do you have a favorite team? Uh, and have you ever worked in hockey in any capacity? And, and would you want to? Yeah, so I uh, I grew up a Rangers fan. Grew up in New York. Um, I've kind of picked sort of like one team, one professional sports team from every place that I've lived in my life. And I've kind of moved on from other ones. So I, I moved to Florida about 10 and a half years ago and started watching all the Lightning games on, on TV and going to some of the games. So I've become a, a pretty big Lightning fan. And uh, we've been okay the last couple of years. Yeah. We've done all right. And uh, – so, yeah, I, uh, I made that kind of midlife transition between teams, but uh, it's been a pretty good one so far. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm into it. I'm watching games uh, pretty much every night through the winter. Like I said, I'm betting on games, doing a lot of fantasy and things like that. So I haven't yet done my research. If you're going to ask me some, like, really kind of inside hockey-type questions here, I, I, I know the season starts next week. I, I need to kind of hunker down. I'm still kind of in – golf and football mode and even in baseball mode a little bit i need to transition into hockey mode a little bit so um you know i i've been keeping tabs a little bit but i need to i need to sit down and do my research over the next week or so well my my uh, inside hockey questions i was going to ask were, was who are your favorite goaltenders of like the 80s and 90s because there, there are a billion old school amazing goaltenders that i absolutely love oh you're you're getting into like my peter ings and darren pangs and Panger. uh yeah, I mean, those, those are some good ones. Uh, John Van Beesbrook, growing up Ranger fan, John Van Beesbrook was probably, uh, he was the man back then and then transitioned into Mike Richter later on. I mean, those those are my guys growing up. So I'd have to say them. I mean, earlier on, I, I essentially, I grew up on Long Island, so I'm, everyone goes, oh, you must be an Islanders fan. Uh, it was one of those, like, everyone else is an Islanders fan, so I'm going to go for the other team uh, that's in the city. And so... Um, you know, kind of in my formative childhood years growing up, the Islanders were, of course, really, really good winning the Stanley Cup each year. And uh, Billy Smith was there, guys. That's kind of the first guy I really remember watching and rooting against just because I didn't, I didn't want everyone else to be happy, I guess. I, I, wanted, uh, I wanted everyone else's team to lose. So um, rooting against Billy Smith and the Islanders back then and going over Islander Ranger uh, games and Yelling pot van sucks and <laughs> chanting with the crowd. Those were fun days. We, I can't. I still tell my parents to this day. I mean, they used to let myself and three, four, five friends when we were 14, 15, 16 years old hop on a train an hour, hour and a half into New York City, go to an Islanders Rangers game, which was, uh, you know, as as uh, as kind of hardcore as you can think in, in the stands. I mean. Yeah, there are fights breaking out all over the place. And then, you know, hey, game's over at 10, 30, 11 o'clock, hop on a train, come back home, and, you know, walk a couple miles from the train station back to your house and, and go to bed. And, I, you know, I still tell my parents, like, 
how did you let me do that when I was a teenager? And they're like, oh, no, you always came home, so it was all right. <laughs> yeah, so obviously hockey will never be as big in the States as, uh, you know, as, as, as it is in Canada, but is there a decent footing there, or is it just sort of like, you know, like the eighth sport or, t- or something like that? Because it feels like, like you are saying, the fights in the stands, it feels like at least regionally, and like, uh, in terms of, you know, uh, Rangers games are always sold out, Philadelphia Flyers games, Penguins games, all these games, in their markets, they're huge, those teams, but it just seems like collectively as a whole, like hockey just doesn't uh, have quite that footing in the States. I almost feel like hockey is in the same realm as golf, which is a lot of people pay attention on a regular basis. A lot of people watch. A lot of people know all the players, have favorites they root for, are betting on it, throwing some money on it, and yet they don't quite think that everyone else is. They think that, like, it, it's just them and there aren't that many like them out there. Cause I, I speak with people all the time. I mean, I, I was, I did two uh, stints with ESPN where people in that building, uh, there are huge golf fans and almost everyone's a huge golf fan uh, watching the PGA tour events, but they wouldn't cover it necessarily. You put on sports center, you won't see any golf coverage other than the major championships. And it's almost as if the people running that place don't think that golf is, as big as it actually is. I have always felt the same way about hockey. Now, by the same respect, ESPN getting the hockey contract, Turner getting the hockey contract for the NHL, I think that's going to open things up. I think it's going to get uh, a lot more mainstream here because it is. I mean, it, it's a fun, fast sport. As you know, the thing moves. It's There's hitting, there's goals, there's action. I mean, there's not a whole lot of downtime. There's not a whole lot of boring uh, minutes in a hockey game. And so I, I don't see any reason why it can't be uh, much, much bigger here in the States because, uh, yeah, like I said, I, I love it. I watch it more than I watch most other sports, quite frankly. You know, I'll, I watch way more hockey than I do baseball or basketball. And uh, obviously they, they met in the playoffs last year, uh, your Lightning against the Panthers, both obviously Florida. Uh, was, there, uh, did, uh, was there sort of a rivalry between the fans? Like how, uh, how sort of heated that, did that become? Uh, because that was a great playoff series. And actually, I'm... I'm a, I'm a fan of watching both those teams. They're they're they're, they're fun teams. Yeah, uh, I look. I mean, growing up with the Islanders Rangers rivalry, I'm not sure I can put Lightning Panthers in the <laughs> same respect. I, it's just different. Um, even if you have diehard fans down in Florida, it's it's just different than growing up in or, or living in a colder climate where the team is everything and, and you're living and dying with wins and losses. I, I sort of feel like even though and there's great fans in the Tampa area, great fans throughout Florida and some of the Southern States, but I, I still feel like when you walk out of the arena after a five, four overtime loss and it's 72 degrees out and there's a band playing outside on the sidewalk and grab a beer and you walk around, you're almost like, okay, it doesn't hurt that much. So I, I feel like there's more passion in those teams, you know, whether it's Canada or the Northern United States, where it's like, man, if we don't win this game, we got to walk two miles back to the car in three feet of snow when it's negative 12 degrees out. This is going to suck. And we need this team to win to inspire us, to, 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 to make us feel good about uh, what we're doing right now. And, and so I just don't think it, it inspires that kind of passion down here, if that mm. makes sense. Oh, absolutely, definitely. And I'm curious, uh, from an outside perspective, uh, what are your thoughts on uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs and the fans, uh, obviously uh, losing every single season? Uh, yeah, I 
I don't know what's going on with the Leafs right now. What were they? They were up three one in their playoff series last year with the Canadians. Yeah, and then of course they blew it. Yep. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, they, on paper, it's a really good team. Uh, I don't know what to tell you. You're a Leafs guy. Yeah, yeah. Grew up just outside of Ottawa and uh, liked uh, the Leafs. My grandpa loved them, and actually, I liked Ottawa as well uh, when I was a youngster. And then they went in the same division. I'm like, okay, I can't be liking both teams. That's ridiculous. So yeah. then I just became yeah. a Senators troll out of nowhere. And uh, yeah, I still love the Leafs. And uh, I'm just always curious what you know because uh, say uh, they're similar in a sense of like the Chicago Cubs, or at least they were before the Cubs won the World Series. In terms of a, a franchise that's just so uh, you know tortured by the fact that they just can't get over the hump, and uh, just always curious about how people feel with the Leafs if they if they feel bad for them or if they're just like loving the fact that it's so funny they always collapse. No, I don't think anyone feels bad for the Leafs at all. Yeah, yeah that's, 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 that's your own thing. You, you stole Tavares away. <laughs> uh, you know, I I love I I think. Matthews is terrific. I think Marner's terrific, but uh, you know, it's no one. No one feels bad for you with all that talent on the roster, not being able to put away the Canadians. I was actually curious uh, to go back to the start of your career. What? Uh, How did you get into the um, into the the business and uh, to where you are now? So, I was I was not very motivated for anything else uh, as a kid, other than I knew what I wanted to do and I knew what I wanted to get into. I mean, I walked into. I looked in the phone book and found a place called Long Island Sports, which wound up being this small newspaper newsletter during the summer that covered high school teams and covered, you know, local uh, AAU teams and things like that. And I, I walked in, I drove there and walked in and 15 years old. And I said, look, can I help out? There's one guy running the whole place. He's like, yes, you can. And so I wound up like being the writer and for a while, the editor of that before I even left for college and, uh, in college, I uh, I worked a whole bunch. I wrote for the Boston Globe in a place called the Middlesex News at the time outside of Boston, and I was producing shows for WEI, the sports radio, and um, again, just uh, either motivated or scared stiff that I wouldn't be able to find a career in what I wanted to do when I got out of school, and so I just worked a lot and uh, got a job at ESPN out of college, worked in studio production where I was a production assistant, associate producer, highlight supervisor for about seven years. And then this golf job came open, uh, editor of the golf content for ESPN.com. And for whatever reason, uh, I had a writing background. I do golf fairly well. I had a TV background and they're starting to put more video online. And so I somehow got the job as the editor. We didn't have a writer at the time. So my second day on the job, I turned to my boss and I said, can I write something? Because I'm the editor of a site that has no content coming in. And, you know, I'm not sure what else I'm supposed to do. And he said, yeah, go ahead and write something. And I wrote something. And the next day I said, you want me to write something else? He goes, yeah, I don't really care. And I go, okay, cool. I'll do it again. And I became a golf writer. I mean, that's, this is 2004. And that's really how it started. Uh, and I did sort of both jobs, writer and editor, for about four years. And then they made me just the writer. I said, look, this is probably too much for one person to concentrate on one of them. And I said, I'll, I'd like to be a writer then. And writer turned into TV and radio and everything else. And, you know, kind of just on multi-platforms now. But, yeah, it's, uh, there is no direct journey. I tell people that all the time that, you know, if you want to sort of follow some blueprint to get to your career, it's sports media is not the way to do it. You you want to become a doctor, you kind of have to go to medical school. You kind of have to get an internship and you kind of have to like work in a hospital. I mean, you, there's certain things you have to do, 
you can't just say, well, I dropped out of high school, but I really like medicine, so I'm going to try to be a doctor. I, it doesn't really work that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you want to get into sports media, there's like no one right path, and there's a million different ways to do it, and everybody's way is different, and so that's just how I happen to kind of get into it. No, that's awesome. Uh, you're doing uh, obviously a fantastic job uh, with all that. Have you? Did you ever have any uh, uh, blunders or huge embarrassing moments where you were just like, oh, no, what have I done? Uh, I'm sure there are a million of them. Um, one of them, back when I was 21 years old, I was about a week into the job, and I was running the teleprompter for uh, one of Dan Patrick and Keith Olbermann's last shows. And so uh, the first two or three segments were as scripted. I'm just scrolling away on the tele- teleprompter. It's like this little dial, and uh, as long as you follow along with what they're reading, uh, there's no issues. But in the fourth segment... The producer in my ear says, hey, we're going to move this to here. We're going to do that, and let's do this next. Well, I have no idea what I'm doing or how to do it. And so all I hear is, scroll down, scroll down, scroll down. And I'm just scrolling through the entire rundown, the entire script for the whole show. I'm scrolling through. We get back from commercial. Dan Patrick looks into the camera and says, hi, I'm just going to wait for my prompter. Now, in in today's age, I, I feel like kind of pulling back that curtain is makes you seem more real. Uh, and it's probably a little more normal than it was back then. Back then, everything was very regimented. Mm-hmm. And so there wasn't, there wasn't this like, you know, this is sports center. This is a big show. It's 11 o'clock at night on a Sunday. Like this is important stuff. We don't have time to make a little joke about waiting for prompter. And so I scroll through the entire thing all the way to the end where it says, goodbye thanks for watching and so they go okay scroll back the other way and so i start scrolling back the other way and dan looks into the camera and says i don't think we're gonna have prompter let's just go i i don't know what we're doing let's go to something and uh, it, it, they play the tape so you know at the time that was that was pretty embarrassing i guess we've all been there that's for sure with those uh, types of mistakes uh i guess i yeah, the last thing i'll say to you is uh have you ever googled your name by the way uh yeah i guess i have how's everybody I googled uh, Jason Sobel, and it comes up as a Rabbi Jason Sobel. I thought that was uh, pretty funny. Have uh, Have you ever seen that? Uh, yes, I have. It's been pointed out to me. Uh, look, uh, that guy's probably doing way bigger things, way more important things than I am. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm happy to share the name. <laughs> well, thanks uh, for this, Jason. Now, by the way, the answer to the sweet old school hockey goalie goalies is Corey Schwab. Uh, that, that, that's one of my favorite ones. I think he played actually for go. both Toronto and the Lightning and the Devils. I believe were the teams he played for. De- definitely Devils. Uh, Devils. I remember him with New Jersey. Yeah, with uh, I think he had a goalie fight with uh, back in the day with them, and uh, yeah, that was uh, he was uh, he was a beauty for sure. <laughs> Well, no, thank you there so you much go. for doing this, uh, Jason. It's been a blast, and I uh, appreciate it. You got it. Thanks for having me. That was a great chat with golf writer and host Jason Sobel. Great to hear his stories from the Ryder Cup, and it's fascinating that he's not as super pumped about the Brooks-Bryson duel as other people are. He's covered golf for a long time, and he's fantastic on Twitter, where you can follow him at Jason Sobel Tan, T-A-N being the acronym for the Action Network, which can be found at Action Network HQ. I also enjoyed talking a little hockey with him, and it's illuminating, good word, to hear that even though they crash and burn every season, that nobody feels all that badly for the Maple Leafs. I'd also be remiss to not mention the newest NHL team set to begin their inaugural campaign, the Seattle Kraken. What they should do to begin their first game is the ending to my intros every podcast. So without further ado, let's get cracking. Maybe, uh, maybe they won't do that. 
Thank you so much for listening to episode 73 of the H-Dog Pod. Meg. This has been the H-Dog Pod with your host, Michael the Hound Dog Harrison. Mm-bang. 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 Mm-bang.